Beloved, I hope that you take advantage of the devotional that is provided each week with the songs that we sing so that your heart can be even more prepared uh, for the Word of God as He brings it to us. Uh, Before the throne of God above, that's just such a beautiful, beautiful, one of my favorite hymns. And even the first words we sing, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. Present tense, we have the continual strong and perfect plea in the form of the guarantee and the guarantor and the intercessor and the mediator and the author and perfecter of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives, and that's three words, who ever lives, the ever goes with the lives, not with the who, who ever lives and pleads for me, forever lives, eternally lives, continually lives, permanently lives for us. Uh, Again, just the rich words of the songs that we sing flow from the passage we have before us here even this morning. Please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. Actually, before you do that, let me uh, follow my notes here and open your Bibles to Exodus 33 (laughs) before we open to Hebrews chapter 7. I want to open up with just a recounting of a story that took place in the nation of Israel after God had delivered them and rescued them and redeemed them out of their captivity in Egypt. And he miraculously provided for them, rescued them, he vanquished the Pharaoh's army that was chasing them. And the response of the nation of Israel, you may remember, in Exodus 32 was to basically break all ten of the commandments that God had given to them in the law with the golden calf episode and all the rest and God's anger burned against them Moses at the beginning of chapter 33 interceded on behalf of the nation and then I want to pick it up in verse 18 because Moses gives a plea and a cry to the Lord and request that reflects in God's answer the holiness of God in verse 18 Exodus 33 Moses said I pray show me your glory And he said, God said to Moses, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. Look at verse 20. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. And then the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock, and it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. That is a powerful reminder of the fierce holiness of God, of his righteous judgment, of his perfect holiness and man even as great a man as Moses can't stand can't be can't see God in his full glory and possibly live on this side of eternity that is a reminder of what it is when you and I when we come together even this morning and we are worshiping behind the veil before the throne of God we are worshiping in the presence of this holy God whose face man in his sinful state cannot see well now if you wish you can turn to Hebrews chapter 7 our passage this morning are verses 20 through 28 this is the author of Hebrews 
uh, kind of closing exposition of this episode of a man named Melchizedek, of Jesus Christ being the perfect high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. It was a topic that the author broached and wanted to talk about beginning back in chapter 5, verse 6. But then he took a diversion from 5.11 through the end of chapter 6 because the audience, his original audience, wasn't ready for the full level of the meat and the depth and the doctrine. And then in chapter 7, it is in one sense in this sermonic epistle, the author of Hebrews' exposition of what it means for Jesus Christ to be the perfect high priest that you and I need, that we continually need to be able to stand, to enter into the presence of a holy God, to persevere in the faith. Beloved, listen as I read Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 20. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. And the former priests on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he on the other hand, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Hence also he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself for the law appoints men as high priests who are weak but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever beloved this is the word of God read in your hearing please attend to it as such now as we continue to embark through this fantastic sermonic epistle of the Hebrews. We know that God opened up through the author back in chapter 1, Jesus being the final word of God, Jesus as the prophet, Jesus as God's representative to man on earth. But the emphasis of Hebrews, the thrust, the massive section here in the middle, which culminates all towards the end, has the focus on Jesus as our priest, representing us before God. And The original audience, this group of Jewish believers, they were believers, but they were being tempted. They were being drawn away from the once-for-all delivered faith, from the once-for-all sacrifice that Christ provided on their behalf. They were having petitions and pleas from family members, neighbors, saying, come back to the old system of human works and drift away from the truth of Jesus Christ as the perfect once-for-all sacrifice, the perfect high priest, and to neglect so great a salvation. That was the temptation, and that was what was on the author's heart when he has this huge exposition of this episode of this man, Melchizedek, that encountered Abraham back in Genesis chapter 14. In Chapter 7 here in Hebrews, the first 10 verses, the focus is on the man Melchizedek. And now he is greater than even Father Abraham. 
And because he is greater than Father Abraham, therefore, Jesus Christ as a high priest is greater than the Levitical priesthood, which came from Father Abraham. And then in verses 11 through 19, there's kind of a transition focus. So you see the name Melchizedek twice in the first 10 verses. You'll see it for four more times in verses 11 through 19. So it's a transition focus where he's shifting from the man Melchizedek to Jesus to be sure in the priesthood. But then here in verses 20 through 28, the central focus, the culminating emphasis is on Jesus Christ. He even shifts from the priesthood, which was more of the focus in verses 11 through 19, to the priest, to Jesus Christ. And what the author does here is he's piling up proofs that he is the superior final high priest, the only one that we need. And as such, he has three closing arguments in these closing verses. Jesus Christ, the perfect high priest that we need, is the promised priest, the permanent priest, and then the perfect priest at the end. And beloved, the intent is that you and I, as children, as adopted daughters and sons of the Most High God, would draw near to God, that you and I would persevere in the faith. This is the perseverance of the saints, and you and I are the saints. So, the first closing argument in the author's exposition of Melchizedek is Jesus is the promised priest. And we see this in verses 20 through 22. And what the author does here is he continues what we've seen throughout the epistle, especially earlier in the chapter and in chapter 6 as well. The author continues his contrasting comparison uh, between the lesser and the greater, between the finite and the infinite. Verse 20, look at the beginning. He says, and inasmuch as it was not without an oath. Now we notice the double negative. That's uh, fully allowable in Greek. Uh, We could put it in our English thinking and say, inasmuch as with an oath. Inasmuch as with an oath. So it's interesting because the word oath brackets this final section. If you're here last week, or even if you read verses 11 through 19, verses 11 through 19 is bracketed by perfect, perfection, perfect, perfect in 11 and 19. And then verses 20 through 29 are bracketed with oath. So perfect, perfect, oath, oath. And then just so you know where we're going at the end, actually the author brackets that entire section, perfect, perfect, and then the final culminating word is perfect. So it is a perfect high priest, and it comes from the perfect oath, vow, promise, word of God. He says, inasmuch as it was not without an oath, and then he breaks into a parenthetical statement in Verse 21, for they indeed became priests without an oath. The Levitical priests, the Aaronic priests, became priests without an oath. They were ordained by God, but there was no oath associated with it. But here's the contrast. He, with an oath, through the one who said to him. So second time we see oath there. In fact, four times we see the word oath here in chapter 7. We saw it twice back in chapter 6. And Beloved, what the Bible is in just a very simple sense, and really the entire church record of church history, the account of church history, the Bible and the account of church history are in one sense simply a record of God doing what he said he would do. He is faithful to his word. He says it and that settles it. And 
The author, as I just indicated, already talked about oath that God had made, an oath that God had made back in uh, chapter 6. The oath that he cited there, the oath the author cited back in chapter 6, verses 16 and 17, was God's promise, God's oath to Abraham. Look at verse 16 of chapter 6. The author there said, men swear by one greater than themselves, and with then an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, verse 17, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath. And he was talking about the oath that he had given to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 16, God had already told Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12 when he called him out of Ur that he would make him a great nation, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through his seed. And God reaffirmed that promise to that word to Abraham with an oath that he gave in Genesis 16. And beloved, we know that the bare word of God is always certain. Whatever God does is right. Whatever he says is true. But what God does in the Old Testament, what the author here is bringing out in the New Testament is that from our viewpoint and for our benefit, the word of God becomes even more emphatic. It's even more assuring. It's even more comforting to us. That is why the author talked about God's oath to Abraham in Genesis 6, and now he talks about God's oath, God the Father's oath, his promise, his pledge, his word to God the Son. And that is what we have here in Hebrews 7. And This is the fourth quote that the author has given from Psalm 110, verse 4. Psalm 110, verse 4. He quoted that in chapter 5, verse 6, chapter 6, verse 20, chapter 7, verse 17. In fact, just look back a few verses, 7, 17. He said, it is witness of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So three times the author has cited Psalm 110, verse 4. But what's fascinating is, in the three previous times, 5, 6, 6, 20, and 7, 17, he cited only the latter portion of the verse. The Lord has said, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The entire verse, Psalm 110, 4, is, the Lord has sworn, Yahweh has sworn, and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So what's fascinating here is this fourth time that he cites Psalm 110 verse 4 is the first time where he puts in the beginning part of that verse. For the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. And here also he leaves out the latter portion according to the order of Melchizedek. Just the brilliance, of course, this is God's brilliance on display because it's God's word, but God uses this human author and the way in which he brought this out because, again, this is flowing from what we talked about before. The focus earlier in the chapter was on the man Melchizedek. Then there was that transitional period in the middle, verses 11 through 19, but now the focus is on Jesus, and that's why we don't even see the name Melchizedek here in these closing verses. Verse 17 was the eighth mention of Melchizedek, the name in Hebrews, the tenth in all of Scripture, and the man goes behind the scene because, again, the focus here is as great as Melchizedek was, greater than Father Abraham. He is merely a shadow. He's merely a type. He points. He's merely a 
signposts on the side of the road pointing to the substance, pointing to the antitype, pointing to Jesus Christ, the perfect priest that we need. He's our mediator. And what we see now is he is not, Jesus is not just merely our mediator, as wonderful and as glorious as that is. He's also our guarantor or our guarantee. Verse 22, so much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee. Uh, This Greek word translated as guarantee, this is the only appearance of this word in Scripture, but it was a word that was very common in ancient legal documents. But the idea of God himself being a guarantee, being the surety, being the guarantor is reflected in Scripture. For example, Psalm 119 verse 122 the psalmist said be surety for your servant for good do not let the arrogant oppress me or Isaiah 38 verse 14 like a swallow like a crane so I twitter I moan like a dove my eyes look wistfully to the heights oh lord I am pressed watch this be my security that's the kind of thinking that's the kind of doctrine that the author is telling us is that Jesus is our guarantee. And the word could be translated either guarantee or guarantor. And Jesus is both. And what you see, verse 22, it begins, so much the more also. Beloved, these are repeated words of not just contrast, but repeated words of infinite contrast. So much the more also. That's the measure of infinity. And the point God wants you to understand is that a mediator is good. A divine mediator with a capital M is good. A guarantor in one sense is even better. A divine guarantor, a divine guarantee. That is what Jesus is as the promised peace. He is the guarantee, the guarantor of, look at the text, of a better covenant. Now, This is the first occurrence of the word covenant in Hebrews. This is the first of 17 mentions of covenant in Hebrews from here in chapter 7, verse 22, through chapter 13, verse 20. So we've covered uh, a little over six and a half chapters, and we haven't even encountered covenant until now for the first time. However, this idea of a covenant becomes such a central part of the whole epistle that The epistle of Hebrews, the letter of Hebrews, has been described by some as the epistle of the covenant. And the word covenant here could also be translated and understood equally well as a testament, as a testament. So uh, this is the first time we've seen the word covenant, but as I've been preaching up to this point, you've heard me mention more than once that the distinction, the superiority, the contrast, the big idea of Hebrews is the infinite superiority of the new covenant over the old covenant. And the old covenant was not bad, it was good, it served its purpose. But the new covenant is the fulfillment, it is the completion. And in fact, when you think of, I'll give you an illustration, the uh, Jewish nation, and even in scripture, the, what we call the Old Testament, uh, the Bible they had up at that point in time, was referred to as the Law and the Prophets, or sometimes the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms. The Bible that we have on this side of the completion of the canon of Scripture, we have two parts. What are they? The Old Testament and the New Testament. 
That's the word covenant right here, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Testament, the first books of the Bible, first 39 books of the Bible, is the Old Testament. The next 27 books of your Bible in your hand are the New Testament. They all flow from this weighty word covenant that we see here. And just a quick point, when we understand covenants and even understanding what the author is bringing out here, there are six biblical covenants. Simple rule, if God calls, calls something in Scripture a covenant, then we should view it as a covenant. If he doesn't, then we shouldn't. We shouldn't suck covenants out of our thumb and make up covenants. There are six biblical covenants, and I say that with love and respect to anyone that may come from a slightly different perspective on that. This is an intramural fellowship discussion. There are five unilateral eternal covenants. The Noahic covenant, the priestly covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. There's one bilateral temporal or temporary covenant, the Mosaic covenant. Now, when we go for the rest of Hebrews, the old covenant the author of Hebrews is talking about is that one bilateral temporal, temporary covenant, the Mosaic covenant. That's the only covenant of the six biblical covenants where you have that statement, if you do this to the nation of Israel, then this will happen. In the five other, in the five unilateral eternal covenants, God says, I will do this. So the point that I lay that foundation is when we think of the Abrahamic covenant, which is one that is primary example right here. What could be better than God's promise to Abraham that he would rescue him, that he would give him a land, that he would bless all the nations from it? What could be a better covenant than that? And the answer is simply this, a covenant where sins are forgiven, a covenant that saves you. So the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the priestly covenant, the Davidic covenant, there's no forgiveness of sin in any of those covenants. The only covenant that has the forgiveness of sin is the new covenant. And that's the distinction, that's the contrast that the author is now picking up in his culminating treatment of his exposition of this man, Melchizedek. I turn for a moment to Jeremiah chapter 31 just to kind of understand the <clears throat> Old Testament, Old Covenant background of this. Jeremiah 31 in verse 33, Jeremiah 31, 33, God says to the nation of Israel, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took him by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which, stop there for a second, the particular biblical covenant he's talking about here is the Mosaic covenant. It was the Mosaic covenant that God made with Israel, the one bilateral, <clears throat> temporary one, the one where there was the if-then statement on man's responsibility behind it that he's referencing here. And he even tells us in the middle of verse 32, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Verse 33, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. 
And they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. Watch this. For I will, and just right there, I will. That I will right there from God in this new covenant, that is the central element of the other four of the five eternal unilateral covenants where God says, I will. God says, I will do this thing. And what he says here is the glorious culmination of all these covenants. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So the land promise to the nation of Israel, the blessing promises to Abraham uh, in the Abrahamic covenant, the throne promise to David, the rest promise that God gave in the Davidic covenant, those are made possible only by the forgiveness of sin that comes in the new covenant. That is the background behind what the author is doing back in Hebrews chapter 7. And I'll give you one more uh, kind of illustration. You may remember in Luke chapter 1, Zacharias, the father of John the forerunner, John the baptizer. Uh, Zacharias, in his prophecy in Luke chapter 1, he appealed to the Abrahamic covenant, and he appealed to the Davidic covenant. He appealed to the rule of the Davidic covenant, the national blessing of the Abrahamic covenant on the nation of Israel and all the people. But Zacharias' focus was on the personal forgiveness of the new covenant. Luke 1 verse 77, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Beloved, that is what the author of Hebrews is bringing out strongly here. God made that new covenant promise in Jeremiah 31 to the nation of Israel. And again, using the same language I've used uh, recently, we have some doubly blessed people here that are Jewish believers. They're ethnically Jewish and they're believers. Most of us are Gentiles. And though God did make that new covenant promise to Israel and God will fulfill that when the nation of Israel turns and looks on the Messiah whom they pierced, Zechariah 12, 10, and mourn for him as for a sin. But all of us Gentiles are blessed in the new covenant. We are beneficiaries of this new covenant promise that God had given to the nation of Israel, which is accomplished and made through your perfect high priest, Jesus Christ. F.F. F. Bruce, the commentator, <clears throat> had these choice words. He said, Jesus guarantees the perpetual fulfillment of the covenant which he mediates on the manward side as well as on the Godward side. As the Son of God, he confirms God's eternal covenant with his people. As his people's representative, he satisfies its terms with perfect acceptance in God's sight. How can we see the face of God and not be consumed by his wrath? by virtue of Jesus Christ being our representative, when we are ushered into his presence forever and ever. Well, <clears throat> he is the promised peace. The second closing argument the author of Hebrews gives in his closing exposition of Melchizedek is Jesus is the permanent priest. We see this in verses 23 and 25. Again, he is your mediator. He is your guarantor. He is also your intercessor. He is your intercessor. He is your unbreakable surety, we could understand as part of his role as the promised peace. And he is your undying savior by virtue of being your permanent priest. And look at verse 23. 
And the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, on the other hand, so we see, we saw this earlier last week in verses 18 and 19. On the one hand, on the other hand, this is more of the contrast. The contrast, the on the one hand and on the other hand, in verses 18 and 19, is on the one hand, there's a setting aside of a former commandment, the Aaronic priesthood. And there's, on the other hand, a bringing in of a better hope. But here, the contrast is between the former priests and he, on the other hand, the former priests who are prevented by death from continuing, they keep on dying. That was part of their problem. The Greek historian, the Jewish Greek historian Josephus calculated that there were 83 high priests from Aaron to the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. So the distinction here is between the singular and the plural, between the dying and the one over whom death has no hold, between the plural and the temporal, between the singular and the eternal, because he abides forever. Because he abides forever, even when we sang the beautiful song before the throne of God, I don't remember the exact words, I could look them back up, but you can look as well as I can. Because he lives forever, that's why when we worship, even right now, as this mere frail man is preaching, and as you are listening to the word of God exposited, we are before the throne of God because he abides forever. The author's point is that his death, he did of course die, but the grave could not, did not hold him. His death was not the final act. His death, beloved, was eclipsed. Dear friend, was eclipsed by his resurrection. That's why the author continues, he holds, because he abides forever, look at the text, he holds his priesthood permanently, unchangeably, in this basically is describing the fact that his priesthood cannot change. It can't be violated. It's, it's inviolable is how you could understand it. It's not capable of being violated, released, destroyed, cast off, abrogated, canceled in any way. Because he lives forever, his priesthood continues on permanently forever. And then we now move to a key verse in Hebrews chapter 7, key verse in this passage in chapter 7, in all of Hebrews, I would say a key verse, beloved, in all of Scripture, verse 25, hence also he is able to save forever. Back in chapter 2, verse 18, because Christ is, Christ is, the Son is, where the Son was, is, and always will be God. In the incarnation, the Son was and is and will continue to be human, 100% God always and forevermore, and now also 100% human. And in Hebrews 2, verse 18, the author brought out the fact of Jesus' humanity that he has the ability to help us. In chapter 4, verse 15, because of his humanity, he has the ability to sympathize. Now he brings out, because of his humanity, he is able to save you and save you forever. Hence, also, he is able to save forever. He has forever met all the divine claims against sinners like you and me, who we were sinners, but now by God's grace and mercy, we are saints, perfectly positionally and in process until we enter into God's presence. 
He's able to say forever, look at the rest. Those who draw near to God through him. Again, this is bringing out the intercessory work. It's bringing out even that problem that we had the brief reminder from Exodus chapter 33 before. That we are able to draw near to God through him. Are able to draw near to him. And what the author does is he shifts now from the past and the work of Christ, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, his coronation, all of which are amazing and lay the foundation of his great intercessory work that we are resting on right now. He, the author shifts from the past to the present with his intercession, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Pantales was permanent before. This is pan, not pantalones. It's not Spanish. Pantales. And now always lives. Pantate. Always and forever is the priest we have. He is our promised priest. He is our permanent priest. And it's interesting. He is our intercessor. We know from Romans 8, 34, the Holy Spirit intercedes. Romans 8, the main thrust of that chapter is God's using the Apostle Paul to let us know that the Holy Spirit is the one who holds on to our salvation. There are brothers and sisters in Christ that have the erroneous wrong thinking that have the idea that one could lose their salvation. That's crazy. We couldn't save ourselves to begin with and we couldn't hold on to our salvation. And Romans chapter 8 tells us that it's the Holy Spirit that intercedes on our behalf and secures and holds on to our salvation. Verse 27, he, the Holy Spirit, intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. But here in Hebrews and actually even over in verse 34 of Romans 8, Christ Jesus is the one who intercedes. Romans 8, 34, Christ Jesus also intercedes for us. It's a both and. Two members of the triune Godhead, beloved, intercede for you and I. Your salvation is secure because the Holy Spirit intercedes for you and your salvation is secure and safe also because Jesus intercedes for you. That's what the prophet Isaiah wrote about in Isaiah 53, verse 12, Excuse me, God said, I will allot him, the son, I will allot the man, his suffering servant, a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many, and watch this, and interceded for the transgressors. Isaiah prophesied it, the author of Hebrews exposits it. Charles Spurgeon, having kind of a high-level statement of the work of Christ, the salvation that he gives you by virtue of what he did for you, this is what the Prince of Preachers said, quote, the curse of the law was not really taken away. In fact, there was but one way whereby it could be removed, the curse of the law. The lightning was in God's hand. It must be launched. The sword of God's wrath was unsheathed. Divine justice must be satisfied. Vengeance was ready. Vengeance must fall. How then is the sinner to be saved? The only answer is this. The Son of God appears and he says, Father, launch your thunderbolts at me. Here is my breast. Plunge the sword of justice here. Here are my shoulders. Let the lash of vengeance fall on them. Thus Christ, our substitute, came forth and stood for us. And 
the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. And beloved, one more time, that is precisely, exactly, immediately what God, what Jesus is doing right now with you and me as we worship together. He's the perfect mediator, the perfect guarantor, and the perfect intercessor because he combines Godhood and manhood perfectly in his own person. Beloved, your pathway through this world is planned for, cared for, and protected by Jesus. Jesus, your enthroned and seated priest king, is the one you come to and the one you come through. We come through. He's the promised priest. He's the permanent priest. The third closing argument in his exposition of Melchizedek is Jesus is the perfect priest. These last three verses of Hebrews 7 has been called by some a hymn to the high priest, H-Y-M-N. And the author finishes his exposition here by citing the person and work of Jesus, his sinlessness and his sacrifice, his person and his work. First, his person, his sinlessness. He is the sinless one. Look at verse 26. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest. Uh, For it was fitting, understand this, it was fitting for God in his grace and mercy, it was fitting for us in our need. It was not fitting for us in our merit, because we had no merit. We deserved, we deserved judgment. We don't deserve to have any expectations met, any desires fulfilled. We deserve only judgment because of sin, but because God is gracious and merciful and in our need, it was fitting that we would have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled. This is a comprehensive picture of his purity. He is inherently pure in his nature. That's the first word, holy. And he remains pure in all his contacts and relations, even in his life and his ministry. That's the second two. He is holy, hosios, unpolluted. There's the normal Greek word for holy that we see is hagios, and that describes the holiness in one sense of position. Uh, this is a slightly different, it's hasios. And the best way uh, in Titus, uh, the, you know, Titus 1.8, Paul's describing uh, biblical leaders. They should be hospitable, loving what's good, sensible, just, devout. That, that word devout, that's the same word that's translated holy here in Hebrews. But I think a better way to understand this word here is in 1 Timothy 2.8, where the Apostle Paul says, I want men in every place to pray with holy hands, lifting up holy hands without wrath or dissension, lifting up hasios, lifting up unpolluted hands. So when it says that Jesus here is holy, the word behind that describes his unpolluted life and more importantly, his unpolluted nature. By his very being, his very nature is perfect. There's no stain, there's no dirt, there's no sin. God is not a man that he should lie. God is not a man that he could or would ever sin. So he is holy, but then also he's innocent and undefiled. He's unpolluted, he's non-evil, and he's undefiled, unsoiled, unstained, free from even being deformed or debased. These latter two 
I think Gary mentioned pronouns and adjectives. These latter two adjectives uh, describe the fact that though he came in contact with evil men, he came in contact with Satan himself. He was not touched by that. He's undefiled, unsoiled, uncontaminated. He does no evil, and no evil attaches itself to him. He passed among and showed mercy to tax collectors, prostitutes, thieves, beggars, scribes and Pharisees full of satanic pride, yet he himself remained unsullied. Again, he met Satan in his great temptation. He touched a leper. He died, yet death could not hold him. He is the one who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. He is the holy flower of deity. God manifested in flesh. It's interesting. Earlier in the letter, and I even cited this somewhat, the author went to great lengths to strengthen and drive home his identification with us in his humanity. Remember, because of that, he's able to help us. He's able to sympathize us. Even earlier here, he's able to save us. But now he moves from his identification with us to his absolute separation from us. Look at what it says, separated from sinners. This is another divine both and. Jesus both received sinners to himself into his presence and was separated from sinners. He's like other men. He stands with other men and women And he stands also completely unique above them. His sinless person in his very nature and his total inability to be even stained or contaminated by evil sets him apart from all other men. And that's why at the end of verse 26, he is exalted above the heavens. This echoes what the author already said back in chapter 4, verse 14. We have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God of God. So that is his person, his sinlessness, but also his sacrifice, his work. And in verse 27, you read, who doesn't need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. And this is a repeat. We've seen this before. We've seen the author, in fact, all the way back in chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, the author there reminded us that Part of the issue with the old covenant priests was they had to first sacrifice for their own sons because they were beset with weakness. But Jesus is not like that. He doesn't, he doesn't sin. He never sins. So he doesn't need to offer up a sacrifice for himself. But at the end of verse 27 is the crux. Because this he did, the sacrifice he did, once for all, when he offered up himself. This is the first explicit mention in Hebrews that Jesus was his own sacrifice, that he offered up himself, that he allowed his blood to be shed, and he did it once for all. It's finished. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing could be taken from it. One died for all, once for all. One died for all. Jews and Gentiles, female and male, old and young, rich and poor, educated and uneducated. He died once for all, and he died for all, all kinds of people. John 12, 32, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men, all types of men and women 
to myself. And then he gives, the author does, the final summary in verse 28. The contrast between law and oath, between the lesser and the greater. He says, for the law appoints men, at the beginning of verse 28, the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. And beloved, understand this. The author here, his main point is still not to belittle the ineffectiveness of the law, but rather to glorify the superiority of the oath and the son to whom the oath, the promise was given. Again, the old covenant, the law was not bad. It was good for its purpose to point people, to point us the fact that we need a savior. The law faithfully demonstrated God's forbearance. The oath perfectly secures God's forgiveness. The law faithfully demonstrated God's forbearance and that he passed over sins previously committed, but his oath completely secured God's forgiveness. And there's a massive difference between forbearance and forgiveness. And again, that's also the distinction between the Noahic, Abrahamic, Davidic, and priestly covenant and the new covenant. And then he finishes, but the word of the oath which came after the law points a son. He moves from the human name Jesus that we saw a few verses earlier back to the son. And again, perfect bracketed 11 through 19, oath brackets 20 through 29, and perfect is the outer bracket. Perfect, perfect, and again, made perfect forever. He went from untested sinlessness to tested sinlessness in his humanity, from unproven obedience to proven obedience. The perfect son became your perfect, my perfect Savior. Beloved, he purchased your salvation. He prays for your salvation. He protects your salvation. That's why Peter, and and you remember when Christ had his exchange with the apostle Peter, and he told Peter that before the crow Before the cock crows three times, you'll deny me three times. But Peter, I prayed for you. Satan has a desire to sift you like wheat, but I will not allow that to be happened. You will fall, but you will not fall ultimately because Christ is the one that cares for Peter. Christ is the one that prayed for Peter and prays for Peter, and Christ is the one that protected Peter for his perseverance. And that's why Peter himself wrote, 1 Peter 1, 3-5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith, for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Beloved, Peter's point, the author of Hebrews' point, is he purchased your salvation, he prays for your salvation, he protects your salvation, so that you and I today and tomorrow will persevere in the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your great, perfect work. We praise you for your person, for who you are. Thank you 
Lord Jesus, that you are our faithful high priest, even now in heaven, even as I, as we are praying together, the fragrant aroma of the incense of our prayers wafts up behind the veil into the very throne room of God and mingles together with the incense and the aroma of the praise that prayers that you're praying even now. What a glorious thought. It is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray, that we sing, that we do all these things. Amen.